morning, Blenville family. It's good to be with you again this Sunday morning. We're still in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to give you a quick review of the last few weeks. In verses 3 through 12, Jesus talked about the type of character disciples of Jesus are to have. Then we learn in verses 13 through 16 that disciples are compelled to impact the world by being salt and light through our good works. Our good works. Uh, they come out of our Christ-like character. Well, in today's text, Jesus goes even deeper into this idea of good works by explaining what it means to be righteous in the kingdom of God. Righteousness. Righteousness is so important, Jesus makes this shocking statement in verses 17 through 20. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, church, pay special attention to verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness is a big deal. Jesus, Jesus makes it the standard by which it will decide if a disciple is in the kingdom or outside the kingdom. To be in the kingdom of God, a disciple's righteousness must exceed what is evident in the lives of the Pharisees, who were all about walking the path of righteousness. In fact, it was common practice for the Pharisees to approach one another with the request to examine each other's lives to see if they strayed away from any of the practices of righteousness. If it was discovered that they had strayed from righteousness, the Pharisees desired to be corrected so they were, could return to the righteous way of life. When Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you would have heard horrified gasps from the crowd, many mumbling, impossible. Who could possibly meet that standard? As a disciple of Jesus, I'm curious. I'm curious what the Pharisees' version of righteousness looked like so I know what Jesus expects of me as a disciple. Now, in later sermons in this series, we will feature some of the Pharisees' acts of righteousness. But for now, let's look at an example that appears later in the Gospel of Matthew to see what we learn about the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, it says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Now, notice the contrast Jesus makes between the outside and the inside of a cup. Now, what's the deal with the cup? Picture this. 
A Pharisee is ready to eat his lunch, and they want something to drink, so they go look for a cup, and there's a problem. All the cups are dirty from breakfast that morning. Uh, no problem. All they have to do is they go to the dirty pile of dishes, and they find a dirty cup from breakfast. Now, let's imagine it looks like this cup on the screen. Now, as people living in the 21st century, we see this and we're disgusted from a hygiene point of view. We think, yuck, the cup is crawling with germs and bacteria. But the Pharisees were not concerned with the danger of germs, but a different danger on that cup. Let's say at breakfast that morning, the waiter who cleared the table, let's say they were a Gentile, a non-Jew. Because an unclean Gentile touched the outside of the cup, by simply touching the outside of the cup, the Pharisee would become unclean. Simply by touching the cup of a Gentile that a Gentile touched, they would be religiously unclean. So, how does a Pharisee avoid being made unclean by the cup a Gentile touched? Easy. You wash the outside of the cup. The rules of the Pharisees stated, if the outside of the cup was clean, they would stay religiously pure. They would stay righteous. Well, Jesus takes this image of a dirty cup and he gives it a spiritual application. Look at Matthew 23, 25 again. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Did you see what Jesus did there? He was talking about a little literal cup, but then he took that cup and immediately talked about the inner life of the Pharisees. To stay on the path of righteousness, a Pharisee would wash the outside of the cup, yet on the inside, their heart was full of greed and self-indulgence. Now, the greed Jesus is referring to here is how the Pharisees would threaten people with religious curses if they didn't pay religious fees that the Pharisees required. The Pharisees were corrupt in their business practices, literally extorting worshipers for profit. They were greedy. Now let's go to verses 27 to 28 in Matthew 23 for another example of what righteousness looks like for the Pharisees. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside. But on the inside, they are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people of righteousness, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, this is a weird text to our modern ears, so let me take a moment to explain it. In Numbers chapter 19, verse 16, the law teaches that anyone who touches a dead body is unclean. Now, to make sure this never happened, the Pharisees went even further than God's command. Their rule stated that you couldn't even touch the coffin. You couldn't even touch the tomb of a dead body. If you did, you became unrighteous, unclean. So to prevent this from happening, before Passover each year, painting crews would go throughout Jerusalem and they would paint tombstones white. Now the whitewash warned traveling Jews where the tombs were so they wouldn't accidentally touch or step on a grave and be disqualified from worship at Passover. 
When Jesus refers to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs, he's warning the crowd. He's warning the crowds to avoid the Pharisees' teachings. He's telling the crowd that by following the Pharisees' type of righteousness, the crowd will become as spiritually unclean as if they kissed a coffin. Now, the crowds were shocked. They were shocked to hear this as the Pharisees were. Now, let's go back to our question earlier in the sermon. What is the righteousness of the Pharisees that is to be surpassed? Well, the righteousness of the Pharisees, their righteousness is mindless conformity to religious rules. Do this. Don't do that. The righteousness of the Pharisees is externally busy, looking religious. But their faith, their faith never gets below the skin. It never gets to the heart. Now, you've seen this yourself. You've known people who have a heart of stone, and yet they look religious on the surface. Well, that was the Pharisees. Jesus calls for a different kind of righteousness in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, righteousness begins in the heart and works its way outward into action. This is how righteousness of a disciple surpasses that of the Pharisees. Our righteousness begins in the heart and works its way outward into action. This is what the Old Testament prophets promised that the Messiah would do. The Messiah would bring two blessings to God's people. Blessing number one, he would bring them a new heart. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 33 says, I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts. You see, the heart, the heart is the seat of the will. Think of the heart as a steering wheel of our lives. Our minds think about the different options for living life, but it is the heart, the will that steers our bodies to act on the thoughts that we have chosen. Well, God blesses us with a new heart. So we have a new way of having the power to do what delights God. But also, God blesses us with a new pilot to steer our heart. A new pilot, a new driver. You see, before Christ, the will, the heart, was guided, was driven by the flesh. What the flesh craved, the mind thought about, and the will, the heart, steered towards. That is why the righteousness of the Pharisees was achievable. Simply obey their 613 rules, and no change of heart was required. Just obey their rules. Forget about the heart. Just do what they say. But as we just learned, the keeping of rules can still occur even though hearts are hardened. And hearts may even be a million miles away from God. But disciples of Jesus, they will be different from the Pharisees. The Old Testament prophets promised that the Messiah would bring a second blessing that would replace the unholy desires of the flesh. Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 26 to 27 says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put catch this and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees 
and be careful to keep my laws. Like Jeremiah, Ezekiel tells us about our new heart. But Ezekiel also mentions the second blessing, God's spirit in his people. To steer the new heart of the disciple towards righteousness, God gives us this new driver, this new pilot, his Holy Spirit. Now, don't miss what God's spirit does in verse 27. It says, I will put my spirit in you, catch this, and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. How do we keep the commands of God? How do we live a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees? We follow the Holy Spirit that is within us. That's what makes the righteousness that Jesus is talking about so different. Righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees is not about the quantity of good deeds, doing more than the Pharisees. No, it's about the motivation. It's about the motivation for our good deeds. Now, how can we tell if the motivation for our righteousness follows the example of the Pharisees or of Jesus? Well, Jesus actually addresses this back in the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount in verses 21 through 48, which we will cover in greater depth over the next three weeks. But I want you to give you a sample of the difference between the righteousness of the Pharisees and the righteousness of Jesus. Look at verse 21 for a moment in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. The command from the Old Testament law is, you will not murder. Pretty straightforward. But the Pharisees, The Pharisees were incredibly creative in finding ways to work around the intentions of God's word. For example, they could have deep hatred. They could have deep bitterness towards a neighbor within their heart, literally wishing their neighbor was dead. However, in the thinking of the Pharisees, because they didn't stab their neighbor in the heart, because they literally didn't kill them, even though they hated them, They still believed that they were righteous. And Jesus says, no, that's not righteousness. What does the righteousness of Christ do? Look at verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You see, where the Pharisees measured their righteousness by their external actions, did I literally kill the person? No, Jesus measures righteousness by the attitude of the heart. Catch this. If my heart attitude is that of hate, wanting a person out of my way, If my heart attitude is that of contempt for another person, such an attitude is as guilty of murder as if they actually killed the person. Why? Because the hate of the will, the hate in the heart, has already carried out the murderous act in the mind. Righteousness. Righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees is evident when we obey God at the heart level. 
Let's take a test. Let's take a test regarding our righteousness using this text about murder and anger. In America today, we are an angry people. Anger was stirred up by the pandemic. We became angry at the public officials because they shut down parts of society or because they weren't doing enough to curb the virus. We were angry about mask requirements. We were angered by anyone who didn't see things the right way, our way. Now add to this an election year. Regardless of the candidate you support or what your position is on critical race theory, we are going through the worst civil unrest in decades. And Raymond Novako, a psychology professor at UC Irvine, says this, We are living in a big anger incubator. Like a giant tidal wave, anger is crashing in upon our culture and it is flooding into churches. As it does so, it is showing what righteousness the church is living by. And unfortunately, I'm afraid it could be the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now, we've not killed anyone, but there are many people who in our anger, many disciples who in our anger, there are people we would like out of the way. Church, that's not the way of Jesus. I don't care what side of an argument you're on. The righteousness of Jesus in such angry times would be this. The righteousness of Jesus would possess the peace that passes understanding. Philippians chapter 4 verse 7. The righteousness of Jesus would walk by the Spirit above all else. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. The righteousness of Jesus puts trust in our Heavenly Father, not in politics. Psalm chapter 112, verse 7. The righteousness of Jesus shows hope to a desperate world. 1 Peter 3.15 The righteousness of Jesus loves his enemies. It does not seek revenge. Matthew chapter 5, 43 to 48. It is a heart of righteousness that is evidence we are a part of the kingdom of God. Jesus is not asking for perfection. He is asking if his disciples are living from the new heart, if his disciples are living from the Holy Spirit that God has given them. Catch this, church. A righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees is only possible if disciples live from the new heart and the Holy Spirit that God has given us through Jesus Christ. Here's the question we're left to ask. What is the source of your righteousness?